Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by General Charles Flynn, Commanding General of U.S. Army Pacific, to discuss the role of the Army in the Indo-Pacific. They touch on the history of the Army's engagement in the region, the foundational capabilities of U.S. Army Pacific, coordination with allies and partners, and threats to the regional security environment. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard for our 59th episode, and we are really privileged to be joined by the commander of U.S. Army Pacific, General Charles Flynn, to talk about the strategic chessboard, the threat environment, our allies and partners, and especially the role of the U.S. Army, which I'm guessing a lot of our listeners don't think about all the time. They look at the Pacific and they see a lot of blue, so they think maritime services and air force. But the reality is the U.S. Army provides the foundational logistics for our presence and operations and historically has been a significant fighting force. There were more Army divisions fighting the Japanese in World War II than Marine Corps divisions, for example. So we're going to explore that with uh, General Flynn. But first, of course, General, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Green. appreciate you asking me to uh, come on the podcast. And we always start, you know, learning a little bit about our guests and how they got situated working on the Indo-Pacific at high levels as you do. You you had career U.S. Army, but how did uh, your pathway end up with you commanding the U.S. Army in the Pacific? So I spent almost four years in Second Ranger Battalion. I went to the Naval War College for my intermediate schooling instead of the Command and General Staff College. So I left the Naval War College in 1997, and I came out to my first tour here in Hawaii. And I was the Chief of Operations in the G3, and then I was a Battalion Operations Officer and a Brigade Operations Officer. So I spent my first tour here from... 97 to 2000. And at the time, the uh, commander of the division was a guy by the name of J.T. Hill, who later became the first Corps commander and the Southcom commander. Uh, James Hill had been at that particular time in Hawaii, I think it was his fifth tour, um, with two tours out of here to Vietnam. Anyways, that officer and then his deputy commander was a gentleman by the name of James Campbell. And his other deputy commander was a gentleman by the name of Dave Barnell. Those two officers, those three, I should say, General Hill, General Campbell, James Campbell, retired, and uh, General Dave Barnell made an impression on me in my, you know, sort of intermediate years as a major about the value of the 25th Division in the Pacific, but also the value of the 25th Infantry Division in the Army in Hawaii. Um, and so I left in 2000, I went to a, a joint job at joint forces command, what was then joint forces command. And I was an observer trainer doing joint training actually on the deployable training team. And then of course, nine 11 happened. And I primarily spent the rest of those years at Fort Bragg as battalion commander, division G3 brigade commander with repeated rotations back to the Middle East. But then I find myself in 2014 being told to come back to the 25th division, to be the commanding general. And so in 2014, I arrived again for the second time, 14 years later. And uh, ironically at the time, Dr. Green, that was, we were in the throes of the pivot to the Pacific. And so 
I spent 14 to 18 here as the division commander of the 25th Division, the senior commander of United States Army Hawaii, and then I was the deputy commanding general of U.S. Army Pacific. I left here and went back to the uh, the Pentagon, was the uh, chief operations officer for the Army for plan strategy, training, readiness, et cetera. And then I was honored to be able to come back to the very headquarters. I was deputy commander in 2021 and be the commander. So basically from 2014 to 2022, I've, I've sort of been out of the area for uh, three of those years, but having spent almost eight of them here and then the previous three years. So almost a decade of my time out here. So oh. I'm honored to be able to do it. Um, and we're glad you're, glad you're out there. My, my brother worked for Stan McChrystal as a Marine major and said it was the hardest charging CEO we ever had and made him do more PT than any Marine Corps general <laughs> officer he ever worked for. So I'm sure you were in really good shape uh, when you were working for Stan McChrystal. When, when you went to the Naval War College, did that kind of hook your interest in Asia? Because the Naval War College, Alfred Thayer Mahan, I mean, a storied history of studying strategy. Did that start to kindle some interest? <laughs> it, it did. Um, the curriculum there, of course, is interesting uh, in that they, at the time, there was trimesters. One was joint military operations. One was strategy and policy. And then uh, the other was structure and organizational design. But I think that the depth of the reading and the exposure to the faculty, the academic faculty there at the Naval War College at the time did take me from a great deal of tactical exposure or experience. And it did put me in a different intellectual place by way of study and research. It was a place also where, you know, we were basically writing a paper a week. All of our exams were papers. So there was a lot of reading and a lot of writing. And to your point, there was a fair amount of the of the academics that was based on Asia and the Indo-Pacific or the Pacific at the time. And then I took a fair amount of electives, I think, that helped me understand this part of the region as well. I did know when I got there that I was coming to Hawaii. So my my head may have been. Uh, that way. And I, I did get exposed a little bit to it when I was in 2nd Ranger Battalion because it was at uh, what is now Joint Base lewis McCord or Fort Lewis uh, then in Washington. So there was a degree of that uh, that I, I was paying attention to even even there. You know, getting to the role of the Army in, in the Indo-Pacific Theater. So you've done, it sounds like 10 plus years in that theater, close right? To 10, close. How, how has the Army's role changed? You know, now they're, they're at the top, but how, how have you seen it evolve and change in those 10 years? Yeah, so I think uh, I think my first tour here, obviously, this is before the, the global war on terror and the commitments that we had uh, across the Middle East. I think the 25th Division has always had a been recognized as the Pacific Division. And I think the important recognition of that is actually from the region. <laughs> And because of its history in the region, in the various campaigns, the 63 campaigns, actually, more than the rest of the campaigns combined across the globe, largely the 25th Division has played a central role in that. But I would say then that what the 25th Division was primarily doing was staying very focused on the Korea plans and then doing the exercises in the region by way by the way, a number of those exercises still exist today. Quick story, uh, Dr. Green. In my recent visit to Thailand, 
the chief of army is a guy by the name of General Narangpong. General Narangpong was a battalion S3 for a battalion that participated in Cobra Gold, and he did the airborne operation into Thailand. Well, I was the battalion S3 of Battalion 127, and we were matched together during that exercise, not knowing one another and not knowing certainly that he would end up being the chief of the Thai Army and I would end up being the commander of U.S. Army Pacific. And we just got that connection in the last uh, nine, 10 months while I've been in command. So I think that that is part of our relationships with them. And so the region recognizes that this division, the 25th division, is part of a, a bigger organization called the Theater Army. And I think when I was in the 25th division, I'm not sure that I fully recognized that. But when I came back to be the commander of the 25th division, and the pivot began, then the theater army, this, in fact, my command went from a three-star command to a four-star command. And the recognition of that was pretty substantial in the region and across the army. Well, let's let's go right to that. Uh, partnership Engagement Alliances. When Vince Brooks, I guess Vince Brooks would have been the first commander of USAR PAC when, as a four-star billet. That's right. And Vince was here when I was, so when I, when I became the 25th commander, he he was the first commander here and had, had gotten here about nine, 10 months before I showed up. And he used to, we had him speak at CSIS when he took on that role. He was outstanding uh, in Korea as well. But he used to make the argument, which got people's attention in Washington, that most of the CHODs, most of the chiefs of defense in this theater are army. So that relationship, that engagement is an important part of, of your job, right? How do you assess the sort of key allies and security partners we work with? Where have you seen some real growth and where do you see opportunity we haven't taken advantage of? You mentioned the Thai, you know, historic ally with some political challenges, but how have you worked those partnerships and yeah. alliance relationships? So again, I think the region, what is uh, on the Asian continent and what exists between the Southeast Asian archipelago land bridge, which connects the other continent of Australia, I think the influence of armies in the region is substantial, as you pointed out. The armies in this region, and as you're noting, I think at the present moment, we have 22 chiefs of defense that are also army generals. So then you also have 30 army generals that are in charge of the armies. So land power and armies in this part of the world play a central and very important role in stabilizing the region. I've said publicly and I've written that the armies here in this region and land powers in this region, they really are the security architecture that bind the region together because they play a central role in protecting national sovereignty, the borders, the people, the resources that main a stable, free and open and international rules based circumstances for each one of the countries. And so to your question, yes, Army leaders play an influential role both in the as chiefs of defense and as army generals. Four of the last five countries that I visited, their chiefs of defense are army generals and their army chiefs are, of course, army generals. And they're likely to be replaced by those army generals. So those relationships really matter. And the region is widely influenced by that role that the armies play here. And I imagine when you're engaging the chief of staff for the ground self-defense forces in Japan, for example, versus the 
chief of staff of the army in Brunei, it's a different kind of dialogue. But what constitutes success for you when you're engaging with your counterparts? Is it a, it's obviously about trust. Is it about access, capacity building, resilience? What what are you kind of looking for when you come? You just had a big tour in Southeast Asia. What do you look for as uh, as success when you have these engagements? Simply stated, Dr. Rand, it's, it's just creating a relationship. And from a, uh, a deeper, honest, open relationship, then opportunities will emerge. So I think that uh, being able to sit down, look each other in the eye, share our concerns about security through one another's perspectives, and then talk about our experiences in the region, allow a, uh, a better, a deeper, a more candid and frank exchange of ideas. And so when you, to, to your question of success, I think success at my level with them is to create a relationship where there is uh, increasing trust that then translates right down into the very force of, at least in my case, the army. And, and then if that army general, like General Yamazaki in Japan, who obviously was the previous chief of army, if that then translates into a broader degree of trust with the joint force and the military, because the influence that an army general plays, then that's beneficial. And I think that that's helpful, not just to the army and land power, I think that's helpful for the joint force. So I think it's really just a relationship. And I think that that relationship continues to build opportunities and create opportunities between our forces and our countries. Yeah, this this came home to me in a very, very tangible way in 2004 and five when the tsunami hit. And the first quad was was a joint quadrilateral task force, uh, US, Japan, Australia, and India. And the, the reason it happened was not those of us in the White House or back in Washington, the Pentagon, the reason it happened was because Admiral Duran, the 7th Fleet Commander, had gone to command a staff college with his Indian counterpart, was homeported in Yokosuka, knew his Japanese counterpart, exercised with his Australian counterpart, and they trusted each other. And national policy followed from that. So the, the payoff's big, I mean, beyond the Army for these kind of relationships. But it has to be tricky, too, I would think, because a lot of these chiefs of defense and chiefs of Army play a different role from our chiefs of defense, chiefs of Army, in domestic politics, like in Thailand or in Bangladesh. Right. So you're you're also kind of representing not just the army, but you inevitably have to be representing the whole US government when you're dealing with uh, someone who's also a political player in a way that our uniform military wouldn't be. Do you have an approach to handle that? Do you try to just stick to military things? Do you talk about civil military relations in the US context? How do you handle that? You've got a political aid, I guess, from the State Department, but it's gotta be a tricky thing. Well, maybe I'm just gonna simplify I don't know if I find it to be tricky. I think that if I am a good example and I am trustworthy and honest and forthright and that the relationship becomes uh, deeper because we're having frank conversations about what our formations, what our armies need from one another, because, you know, they have skills, they have attributes, they have characteristics, they have advantages that we do not have. And we need to learn from them. And I think that that that's a helpful way, or at least my experience here has been helpful that it's not all about what the U.S. Army wants. 
It's also about what they can provide and can help us with, because there are certain things that their army does in those countries that are really, really helpful. If you don't mind, I'm going to tell a story here to highlight this fact. When I was a division commander, I went and brought a corps commander from an army in Southeast Asia. And I brought him into a brigade command post. And the brigade command post had UAVs flying. It had full motion video. It had all this, I'll say, high-end technology that was monitoring, tracking, reporting, and conducting and command and controlling a fairly large operation. And I was feeling pretty proud. And I walked out of the command post and I sort of looked at the Indonesian Corps commander. I'm a division commander. And I, I said, what do you think? That was really good, huh? And he, he turned to me and he said, and he pointed over his shoulder and he said, you know, we'll never be like that. And I sort of stopped and you know, took, there was some air out of my balloon there. And then he pointed over at the jungle and he said, but that's what you need us for. And I think the point is that this is sometimes more about them and less about us. And I try to use that when I go into my meetings with uh, my counterparts, because I think that that helps create opportunities for the U.S. and the U.S. Army and the U.S. military. And I think that that's part of the forming that security relationship that matters over time. That's actually a great story. And it captures in, in your job what I think the State Department, the Treasury Department, the whole U.S. government and our allies and partners should be doing. Because in the contest we're in in Asia right now, and historically for us in that region, if, if we're helping countries be more resilient, more secure, and achieve their goals, we win. Uh, when we're trying to harness into our goals, it's not, it's not gonna work if that's all we're bringing. So it's, that's a great example. Could you tell us a bit, you know, the USAR PAC provides what's, what are called foundational capabilities for all the US forces in the Indo-Pacific. Could you tell people a bit about what that means? What are these foundational capabilities? Before I do that, yeah. could I just come back to that point you just were sort of uh, highlighting. I mean, at the end of the day, the relationships of senior military officials are really senior officials. So I believe, and I guess my experience bears witness to that the great counterweight <laughs> against any adversarial destabilizing or activities that try to undermine national sovereignty the great counterweight is the network of allies and partners that we work with here. I mean, full stop. That is the great counterweight uh, because if the neighborhood is friendly to one another and we're working to achieve one another's aims, objectives, and goals and trying to help, then that will be the greater good and the best counterweight that we have to destabilizing activities, uh, namely uh, from China, but there's also from North Korea and there's also from Russia and there's also from uh, extremist organizations. If I can, I'll jump over to the question, Mike, unless you want to respond. No, no, Mike, absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely agree. So, so additional capabilities, yeah. So often, you know, misunderstood and not well, well represented is that the theater army, and by the way, the, the largest theater army by more than two times is the theater army that I command, honored to command. 
And in this theater army, we have commands that we refer to as enabling commands. Those enabling commands are things like integrated air missile defense, sustainment, contracting command, civil affairs, engineer, core of engineer, vertical and horizontal engineers, port opening capabilities, police. It's just uh, there's 13 flag officer commands that represent enabling capabilities that I refer to as foundational to the joint force. My secretary talks about them being the backbone of the joint force. And I think that those capabilities give us scale and capacities in the theater that uh, allow for uh, freedom of maneuver, freedom of action for the joint force commander, because they bring scale and they bring command and control and they bring the ability for headquarters to become coalition, joint, interagency and multinational literally overnight. I mean, the one thing that the Army does bring is command and control and scale because our headquarters can build up very, very quickly because we have flag officers in charge of it, a full and robust staff, and we can take on, as I said, joint multinational and interagency or even international plugs to be able to respond from typhoons and earthquakes to other crises or to conflict. And so... I think that's the value of these foundational capabilities that are found at the theater army level. And your command was just recertified as a combined joint task force capable command. And that's what that means, right? That, that ability to integrate in a crisis is there in your command. That's right. So we, we uh, shortly after I took command in June, there was an exercise called Pacific Century. And Pacific Century was the JTF certification for U.S. Army Pacific. And so we do that once every two years. I'll do it again in, uh, in June of 23, under obviously the uh, command and control of US Indo-PACOM, who was a huge player in that as well, as, as well as the other components, uh, PAC Fleet and PAC AF and Mar 4 PAC and SOC PAC. So the Indo-PACOM Commander Admiral Aquilino has you know, stated that one of the big challenges we face is an erosion of um, traditional deterrence vis-a-vis peer competitors, obviously China. And part of that, of course, is the extended a to AD anti-access air denial envelope. The PLA increasingly enjoys access. We see what happens this week in the Solomon Islands with a joint military agreement with China. So um, as that envelope moves out into the maritime domain and into the area where the Army provides these foundational capabilities, how does that change your job? How are you uh, transforming land power and thinking about the Army's role when this is a, this is a very different environment than when you first served out there, I'm sure? Yeah. I think I'll address how maybe the region has changed, certainly since 2014, and also since just as recently as 2018 when I left, and you know I sort of re-enter back into it in 2021. So I'll jump up to South Asia first. You know, when I departed, probably the damning effort along the Mekong was the one of the more profound problems that was there, and of course. As you mentioned earlier, or touched on it, there was a, a coup there in 14 in, uh, in Thailand. But I actually think military to military, we've come a long way. And I, that was represented the other day or last two weeks ago when I was in Thailand with General Narong Pong and, uh, and the leadership of, of Thailand. But let me go across South Asia and tell you where we are today. We have, I'll 
refer to it as uh, previously there was fighting. Now there's hardening of positions along the line of actual control between China and India. We have incursions in the Bhutan. We have a coup in Miramar. We have ground routes being developed uh, down into the port of Karachi. We have ground routes being built into Rangoon. We have high-speed rail being built. We have challenges in Laos and Cambodia. So in South Asia alone, since I left in 18, there are some challenges that need to be addressed. By the way, Dr. Green, that represents nearly 2 billion people from the Indian border to Vietnam. So that is not something to, uh, we, we have to pay attention to that. And then my recent visit just highlighted this, is that while we have a number of opportunities, I believe in Southeast Asia with the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei, Papua New Guinea, Timor-Leste, I, I believe that there's opportunities there. But what I would express to you is that they are concerned about some of those destabilizing uh, activities in South Asia migrating into Southeast Asia. Okay. And then I'll jump out to Oceania. And you mentioned the Solomon Islands. There are other challenges in Oceania. And I think as you and I have talked before, many of the countries that I just talked about, they are concerned about three things. They're concerned about fresh water, they're concerned about food security, and they're concerned about minerals, minerals to run factories, to keep people working and to help their economy. And those that includes these small island nations that, you know, if they get wiped out by a natural disaster, they need resilience in their infrastructure because what, what do they need? They need an airport open back up. They need a port open back up. They need their power grid back on so they can treat injuries and they can stave off uh, loss of life. And I think that that's where, you know, the army plays a role in being able to respond on the ground to the people who live on land so that we can protect our allies and partners, build that relationship, increase trust. And as a result of exercising out there in the region, like we do uh, constantly, we are creating conditions where interoperability and trust are really our value proposition in the region. And that network of allies and partners that grow from that is, again, is the great counterweight to any of these adversary and destabilizing activities that occur here in, uh, across Asia and Southeast Asia, or for that matter, Northeast Asia as well. So what I think I'm hearing is as the security environment gets more complicated in South and Southeast Asia with capabilities of peer competitors, uh, the, the answer is more engagement, more access, more partnerships, broadening, uh, strengthening our critical advantage, I guess. So, yes, I do. But I also think that because I think your question was more about, you know, the, the Chinese arsenal and the A2AD capabilities that they've developed. So it's let me put it this way. The A2AD arsenal that they have created is largely designed to defeat naval and air power. And then secondarily, it is to degrade, disrupt, deny, and counter uh, space and cyber. It's not primarily designed or even secondarily designed to find, fix, and finish land forces. 
So distributed, lethal, mobile, networked, meshed into the joint web with our allies and partners, land power distributed using all those attributions that I just talked about it. Land power not only increases confidence in our allies and partners, not only increases our joint and multinational interoperability, it can do things on the land that is challenging for our adversaries to have to engage in. And so I just feel like if we go at this challenge domain on domain, the outcome is not something we seek. But if we go at this challenge in a very joint multinational way, then and our allies and partners are part of that equation, that will be the great counterweight to what they have designed. And I think that no force in the world can contend with a, a highly competent joint and multinational effort. That's interesting. And it's kind of counterintuitive. You know, in the Cold War and NATO, land power was the Soviets' advantage, and we needed to come up with asymmetrical responses. But but what you're saying in this traditional maritime and, and air theater, our, our asymmetrical advantage may actually, you know, be land power itself, if it's mobile and if it's agile. Well, I will not dispute the critical nature of naval, of maritime and air power. I will not. That is absolutely central. But land power, distributed, networked, lethal, mobile, <laughs> and meshed, uh, networked to the joint force on the terrestrial layer, the aerial layer, and the space layer, one that can operate in all domains, one that can have impacts in all directions, and one that is conducting operations in every dimension, the human dimension, the physical dimension, and the information dimension. I think that that overcomplicates the problems for adversaries here. And that, to me, along with our allies and partners, that is the great counterweight to their efforts. Really interesting. When I hear that, what I think is, if you're talking about mobile distributed network, you're talking, if I'm thinking about this correctly, you're talking about a different kind of army officer than the kind of army officer who worked in the theater maybe 30, 40 years ago. You, you, you need captains, lieutenants, majors who know the theater, who know their counterparts, you know, who have some sense of the history and the cultural context, different kind of geography. Are you getting those young officers and NCOs coming up in the force to, to do this new strategy? Yes, we are. So let me let me touch on that a little bit. So this is where multi-domain operations come in. This is where the multi-domain task force comes in. This is where a redesigned First Corps comes in, our three-star operational headquarters out here. This is where the Security Force Assistance Brigade comes in. So this is all about, you know, when 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 the Secretary of Defense says, you know, integrated deterrence. My translation of that to the tactical leaders is the sum total of capability, posture, messaging, and will. And then the intent from my joint commander, Admiral Aquilino, is to think and act and operate differently to seize the initiative. Well, my again, my interpretation of that is, and I translate that into, we're going to take new formations, our signature formation, like the multi-domain task force and other new organizations like the Security Force Assistance Brigade. We're building a theater fires element in my headquarters. We're likely to have 
another multi-domain task force out here in the Pacific fairly soon. And so this is exactly the approach that I think you're talking about, Dr. Green, is these are going to bring a new kind of soldier. This is going to bring a new type of thinking. This is going to create opportunities out here that previously we had not been thinking our way through until we took our operational, our new concept from multi-domain battle, which was in the pre-2018 period. And we, in 2018, came out with multi-domain operations. We matched the modernization efforts of the Army. We stood up a four-star command to focus on modernization, Army Futures Command. And then we put in place the multi-domain task force with the Brigadier General in 2019, our signature organization. And then out comes the Security Force Assistance Brigade into the region. So these are all things, Dr. Green, that you're talking about, because we have to organize differently around this problem and creating new organizations that are matched with modernization priorities in this theater, I think are going to be, again, a way for land power and the security architecture that binds the region together with our allies and partners to play a profound role here. So I'm a historian, among other things, and it's a great discussion. And it reminds me of one of the characters in the history I wrote of U.S. strategy in Asia. The first real army officer to go to the Pacific was a Kentucky cavalryman named Humphrey Marshall. And he commanded a regiment of Kentucky cavalry in the Mexican-American War, West Point uh, guy. And uh, he ran for Congress from Kentucky and was offered a political post that he chose to be the ambassador to the commissioner in China. And up to that point in the 1850s, everybody who worked on the Pacific was from New England or New York and was Navy. <laughs> and so this army colonel goes out, becomes U.S. commissioner and changes American strategy because he sees the region differently. And he wrote home, and I quote this, it's the title of that chapter of my book, By More Than Providence. He said, this is the theater for the most keen intellects. He saw this theater differently because he was a land power thinker and put in place a lot of key pillars of our Asia strategy we still rely on today. So it is a theater for a really keen intellect. And I think for a lot of officers, NGOs, soldiers working for you, it's got to be pretty exciting. So, uh, General Finn, thanks so much for joining us. Great discussion. Really appreciate it. Okay. And uh, I appreciate you asking me to be part of this, uh, Dr. Green, and I really look forward to coming back. In fact, if I do come back, what I'd really like to talk uh, to uh, sort of big efforts that we have underway is the Joint Pacific Multinational Readiness Center, our training center that we're creating out here in the Pacific, uh, like we have one in Europe and two in the continental United States. That's a pillar of our uh, new approaches and our ability to think, act, and operate differently. And then what Vince Brooks and I were on the you know, front end of with Pacific Pathways, the operational design that we have for the theater is uh, operations pathways. And I'd, I'd like an opportunity to talk about that, but we could do that at a, at a follow-on. Big initiatives. Congratulations on those. Thank you. General Finn, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page. Hi, Asia Chessboard listeners. I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the CSIS China Power Project and host of the China Power Podcast. 
I'm inviting you to listen to our conversations with leading experts on the challenges and opportunities presented by China's growing power. We discuss topics such as Chinese military capabilities, China's relations with other countries, and critical issues in U.S.-China relations. You can listen and subscribe to the China Power podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or on ChinaPower.csis.org.